Well, good morning. What a beautiful morning it is. And when we think of what it could be and how warm and how sultry it could be, what a beautiful morning God is allowing us to enjoy. And we're thankful for that, aren't we? I want you to know it's a real privilege for me to be here and it's a joy uh, to be invited here. And uh, several years ago, I'm not exactly sure of the times, I know that um, dear Paul Alford gave me um, brochures, archived brochures or camp flyers of when my father was here. Uh, my father preached here twice, you may not remember him, um, but he preached here twice. I remember those occasions when I knew of his camp meeting schedule, and I, I remember Camp Syker. So it is a privilege for me to be here and to share with you the timeless, always appropriate Word of God. Aren't you thankful that we never ever have to worry that something in Scripture is going to all of a sudden become irrelevant. And I've often wondered about those church signs. Have you ever wondered about church signs? I wonder about church signs. I pass them and I wonder who in the world put that on the sign? What were they thinking? Why were they thinking that? Why didn't they just leave it blank? But one that I, I have come across and it's not as frequently today, but it was frequent for a while because everyone needed to tell the world that we were not irrelevant, but we were relevant. And I often thought, do we really need to advertise that? Do we really need to try to yell to the world, hey, come talk to us, come meet with us? We're relevant. Now that church down the street is completely irrelevant, but we are relevant. So I don't know why we say those things. The Word of God is always relevant because it's always true. So uh, praise His name, and we thank the Lord for the consistency and constancy of His Word. Before we look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, I just would like to share a word of prayer with you that God prepare our hearts and our minds for what He wants to say to us today. Gracious God, faithful as you are, we come into this place at this time with a genuine desire for you to speak. We pray as we were thinking and even singing on the way up here today, speak, O Lord. May you speak to your children today and to your people today in the way that your spirit knows we need your word. May it be transported to our hearts and to our hearing and to our reception in a way that will really mark us and impact us. So may the word as it goes out not fall to the ground without being absorbed and applied by the help of your grace and your goodness. So bless our hearts and minds together in your word today. Even if it's a little hard, we pray may we be prepared to receive it because it has come from you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Last night, we looked at the transfiguration, and I mentioned what had preceded, uh, in Mark's account, what had preceded here, the transfiguration. And I want us to look at these words, that which comes right before the marvelous moment when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. So Mark chapter 8, and uh, verse, starting with verse 27 and reading through verse 38. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? <clears throat> Jesus went out, uh, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Boy, if we stop the reading there, Peter would have had a banner moment. I mean, he just would have earned all kinds of brownie points at that moment. But we read on. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You may be seated. I like Mark's depiction and we know it to be inspired, so I gladly receive it as an accurate depiction that Jesus spoke plainly. Don't you like that? Jesus spoke plainly. I'm always encouraged when someone gets to the point. I'm just that kind of a guy. I'm a cut-to-the-chase kind of guy. Um, I'm not very good at using illustrations. I'm not very adept at using illustrations. I'm not much of a storyteller, but I really, really do love the Word of God. So where others have strengths and I have weaknesses in those areas, I just am thrilled always to get to the Word and cut to the chase. It's just the way I think. Maybe it's because when I was called into the ministry, you know, I had this thundering presence in front of me known as my father, and I just wasn't like him in many respects. Now, some of the ways, they rubbed off by osmosis. You just pick them up because you're at the same dinner table. 
So mannerisms, things of that nature, I'm sure I picked up. But I am not the pulpit presence that my father was. So I wondered where I fit. I received great help from my wonderful, um, gracious mother. I remember she actually helped me prepare my first sermon. It wasn't dad, it was mom. Isn't that interesting? But here were her words to me when she was, I think, trying to groom me and, and impact me for ministry. She said, Jonathan, let the text speak. Let the text speak. She also said, use the words of the text because God inspired them. God actually used those words. Those were critical words that God inspired. So use the words. And don't always insert your own. Use the words that are in the text. So that's the, that's the general direction in which my heart and my mind uh, uh, tend to go. So I like the fact Jesus spoke plainly. It's interesting. We would think that when Jesus speaks plainly, everyone would like it. And everyone would, would rejoice, my, how plainly he spoke. Isn't that wonderful? We've had a good day in church. We've had a wonderful time together because Jesus spoke plainly. But you know what, friends? The world is not running after Jesus today. And people are not flocking into churches today. Your churches are probably not filled and the average church is not filled today. And if Jesus is this vicarious sacrifice, the one who takes our place, why is it that everyone isn't saved? Why is it that our churches aren't packed? Why is it that there isn't just this unilateral, universal movement toward God because Jesus has indeed suffered for us? Why is that? You know, you would think that if one takes the place of another and those for whom their places are taken and those who are given grace and those who are covered by the work of this one who takes our place, one would think, my goodness, you couldn't get any better deal than that. So if Jesus has taken our place, why is it the world doesn't run to him? Why is it that there isn't such a movement in our world that people are running after him? Why is that? Well, I think we get a glimpse here. I think we have some hints in this passage as to why that's not the case. But in looking at why that's not the case, I want us also to face very, very openly and face with agreement and assent what it is that Jesus expects of us. You know, if Jesus was the only one who had to suffer, if Jesus was the only one who ever had to face a cross, if Jesus was the only one who ever had to be put into a place that was unjust and unfair so that he could atone for you and for me, if there weren't any requirements for us, I would think that the world would run after Jesus. Don't you? But they don't. So why is that? There would be probably too much speculation involved for us to look at why did Peter get so bent out of joint? Why did Peter get so upset when Jesus began in one of these moments to speak plainly about the fact that he would suffer, 
he would be rejected and rejected by all the kingpins in the Jewish world and that he would be killed. But it doesn't end there. Jesus spoke plainly and said that not only would he be killed, but he would also rise on the third day. So he spoke plainly. You know, I won't go to all of the places today, but it's interesting to me that when Jesus revealed what was going to happen and why he was here, and when he made it plain to his disciples, some of the strangest reactions occur in Scripture. This is one of them. Later on, and I'll just allude to it here, James and John seek the right and the left seats after Jesus said, in another instance, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. People do strange things when they hear about suffering and death. I think the reason that Peter got out of joint in a hurry and, I, and why he rebuked Jesus is, first of all, because it just wasn't what Peter wanted. Our want is powerful. Did you know that? Frankly, you, you know, as I was driving up here today, I needed to get back home and get some things that I wasn't able to bring um, yesterday because of the day that I had in pastoral ministry. And I know that you do want me to change my clothing from time to time, and you would prefer that I bathe. So I needed to go home last night and get a few things that I didn't have time to bring yesterday. But in doing that, I pass churches. We pass churches, don't we? In Lancaster, on a given day, it varies between about 105 and about 107 churches. I'm not making that up. Um, there are that many churches, and I just saw a new one today. And I thought to myself, why in the world do we have so many churches? Just kind of thought about that. You ever think about that? And why do they just kind of pop up here? What are they thinking? Are they thinking nobody else can figure anything out? And no one else has it right? And so we're going to buy this storefront and we're going to have a church. And I've just kind of wondered about those things. Maybe I'm the only one, but I wonder about those things. Here's a church, there a church, you know, everywhere, church, church. It's just kind of interesting to me. I think a lot of times it's based on taste. It's just based on sheer taste. And, you know, I think that's kind of sad. If I could just deviate for a moment, I don't find that good. I don't find that wholesome. I find that self-centered. More churches are popping up all over the place, but it's because of taste, not because of clear gospel preaching, but just plain old taste. The reason why taste today is at such a premium is because people have not in any way in our culture been restrained in their wants. We want what we want. We want it now, right? And we want it whenever we decide we want it, even though we might only show up 25% of the time. By the way, that's consistent with surveys these days that individuals who believe, they believe this, they believe this, that's even more frightening, they believe that they are faithful if they show up 25% of the time. God help us. We want what we want when we want it and on the whim of our wants. 
So one thing I believe we can count for sure. Peter would not have rebuked Jesus if this was what he wanted. So for whatever reasons, and we won't speculate too much, he didn't want this. So the word that he was getting from Jesus and the clues that were obvious, that Jesus was going to suffer, he was going to be rejected by the important people in religious circles, he would be killed, and he would rise from the dead. Peter didn't want that. He didn't want to hear it. So he took Jesus. Now, this still is astounding to me. He took the Son of God because he had just said that. Are you with me? He had just declared, you are the Messiah. Okay, we get that, right? So it wasn't like he was just kind of bouncing around different thoughts in his head and, was, and, and they were inconclusive to him. He had already said in a wonderful way, answering Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? He had already said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the sent one from God. But the umbrage of Peter, the the arrogance of Peter to then take the Messiah and accost him, get him by the arm and tell him what for. Human arrogance is astounding. Sometimes we just don't realize how bad it is. We don't realize how far-reaching it is. Here's Peter who has just said, you are someone I'm not, but I'm going to tell you what to do. Wow. That staggers me every time I look at it. But then I pastor. And people tell God all the time what to do. People tell Jesus all the time they don't like what they're hearing. And Jesus, on occasion, rebukes us back. I think one of the worst characteristics of the American church today is we have fabricated our own faith. We have reached what we want, and we've put it up on, on our hallways, they are our vision statements, our mission statements, and Jesus is often absent from it all. We've made our own faith, and we've disregarded the Messiah, the sent one. Just like Peter said, I'm going to tell you what to do, Jesus. I don't like this talk. This isn't the plan. I didn't leave everything to follow you and then hear you talk like this. Who knows, Peter also might have had a marketing mind, I don't know, but he might have thought, you start talking like this, Jesus, and the crowds are going to peel off. How many times are we told these days, Matt, in the things that we read, there are just certain things we ought not say, we might lose somebody. You know what, friends? By the time Jesus enters Jerusalem... Because as Mark was so clear in his thinking to portray, 
Jesus is always moving resolutely to the cross. When he enters Jerusalem, the crowd has thinned down to just about nothing. In fact, he's a little bit ahead of his disciples when he overlooks Jerusalem and weeps over it. And when he's on the cross, there are a few women and John. The crowds had exited stage left. So why is it that a vicarious sacrifice gets so easily rebuked and jettisoned in our allegiance? Why is that? Well, Matt had told me before that in the morning services I only had five and a half minutes, so I better move. No, he didn't tell me that. <clears throat> but he did say it was a little shorter, so I'll try to move quickly. Whatever Peter's thoughts were, he thought he had the clout to tell Jesus to knock it off. Wow. That ought to really shock us. It ought to jar us. Peter's telling Jesus what for. My. At the same time that I recognize that in Peter, my heart cry, my prayer for me is that in any way, subtly or conspicuously, I never want to tell Jesus what for. So whatever his reasons were, He rebuked Jesus. Jesus, seeing the disciples, rebuked him back. And he didn't call him Peter. Did you catch that? I don't ever want to be called that name. Satan, get behind me. Why? You are in the mindset. You are in the matrix of the world. You're thinking like the world thinks and like men think, and you are not minding the things of God. Now, I really believe with all of my heart, although these are challenging days for us, I believe these are great days of opportunity. May I say that? I have come out of COVID as a pastor, and I have thought these are not the doldrums. I really believe there is great potential for God to do good things in our world while we are on this watch. So I just want to go on record for that. I believe if we will stand true and if we'll get rid of the junk and if we'll get rid of the fluff, I believe there are people out there who are actually hungry for a clear call. I believe that with all of my heart. And I believe if we'll stand up and quit trying to cozy up to people so that we don't ruffle their feathers... I really believe if we're just lovingly honest with them and we declare the Word of God, I believe there's great hope in this day for another awakening. But the church has to be revived. And if, any, if in any way, revived in the Word, revived in the truth. It also may have been with Peter that he just knows this. Hey... I'm associated with you. 
if you're going to suffer, if you're going to be rejected, if you're going to be crucified, that involves me. And guess what? In a spiritual sense, he was spot on. He was spot on. So what did Jesus say? Remember, he's speaking plainly. Let's just quickly look at what Jesus says. We find it in verse 34. This is what Jesus said, and he meant it. This is what Jesus says. If, one of the greatest theological words in Scripture, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. An easy kind of skeleton step system here. Deny, die, and devote. Deny, die, and devote. Now, don't deny Jesus. Peter did that. Deny yourself. Wow, deny yourself. We don't deny ourselves anything. But yet Jesus says deny yourself. Deny yourself. Now, great minds that have gone before us have spent page upon page explaining this. But I'll just try to simplify it and say this. In every way where you could ever be up against the will of God, vote yes for the will of God and vote against yourself. Okay? Vote against your will. Vote against an opposition to God's will. Vote against it. Vote against it. Deny yourself. Vote against it. Deny having what you want especially if it in any way diminishes God having all of you and you having all of his blessing. Deny yourself. If by choosing this or that or wants or likes or pleasures or whatever, if in any way those are incompatible with God, with him being pleased with us in all things, if there is any way that that puts us at conflict with God, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Second, and I know we don't like to hear this. And when I first heard it, I thought, what in the world is God expecting of us? And what is Jesus after here? But he says this, take up your cross. Now, don't confuse this with, well, I have a bad case of gout, and I get it fairly often. That's my cross to bear. Come on, folks. Most of us, most of us don't have anything that really qualifies even as a cross. We have been in a nation with ease and with access that the world has no clue about. So it isn't about, well, I have this bad case of lumbago or one leg shorter than the other or whatever, and I have this cross to bear. No, Jesus was not speaking of that notion of crosses to bear. What he was speaking of was this, something about us, something that is in us, something that is spiritually, clearly a driving force in us has to encounter a cross death. Can we just sign on for that? 
If Jesus is speaking plainly, he's not saying, I just want to mildly um, reshape your thinking or I want, to, I want to modify your behavior a little bit. No, you don't put someone on a cross to teach them a lesson. They were put on a cross to die. Do we understand that? Cross language, crucifixion language, which Jesus obviously used, the Apostle Paul as well, has a spiritual reality to it and a requirement to it and a demand to it that you and I simply cannot ignore. There is something in a moment of time that has to qualify in your life and in mine, if we're going to follow Jesus, it has to have a moment of cross death. We have to have a moment of cross death. That which was alive before needs to have its conclusion on a cross death. But we're not physically dead because he, he concluded the trilogy with this, follow me, follow me. You know, it's interesting how Hollywood is so absorbed with dead people walking. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, they just seem to be on, on every channel. They're just dead people walking. How many movie, movies have been made about zombies? It's kind of weird. But then at the same time, Jesus gives the great spiritual meaning of being dead but marvelously alive. Being dead to what we ought to be dead to. Dead to me firstism. Dead to sin. But alive unto God. In Christ Jesus. He's saying there is an existence in this life to which I call you that has these three elements in it. In fact, the first two are necessary for the last. You need to deny yourself, vote against yourself, vote against you having your own way. Isn't that a good, good way to live? Vote against you having to have your own way. And then Die to yourself, die to sin, and live unto Christ. In what way? Devote yourself to him. Follow him. Love him exclusively in a first preference way. And walk with him with all of your heart. You know, that, that might look to us as, ooh, that's hard stuff to swallow. At the same time, it's the most positive, optimal, hopeful truth we could ever hear. Isn't it good to know we can be rid of our self-centered selves? Isn't that good? I'll tell you one thing. My wife is glad for that. She's got enough to deal with, with me. Uh, but I know she's glad that in my own life, there was a moment, there was a real moment. Even though I was forgiven of my sins, there was a real moment when Jonathan Morgan 
came to an end of living life for his own preferences and having his own way. What a wonderful release if you and your partner, you and your church, you and your pastor, if our groups are filled with individuals who are not filled with themselves. What a wonderful blessing that can be. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus speaks plainly. And after last night's message, we remember what? Listen to him. Listen to him. So what does he say? If you want to come after me, if you want to be one of mine, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Let's just ask the Lord in these days, if I'm missing anything, if I've let other voices, and boy, they're around us all over the place, if I've let other voices speak what they say would be truth to me, what have I done with your truth, Jesus? Am I listening to you? Did I get it? Have I not just understood a few things, but is your message to me to be a follower of yours, is your message true in me? Did it sink in? Did your spirit do the work? Is this a testimony of my own life? Denying myself, taking up my cross, and following Let's stand. I think if it's all right, I just want to give us an opportunity if we would like to pray. You may do so, but I would just encourage us. Let's let this soak a little bit. I don't think that's a bad thing. Let's let this steep a little bit. These are, these are hard truths sometimes. Let's just let them steep, shall we? Father, we conclude our time together this day trusting your Holy Spirit to take your word and apply it to our hearts in a way that will change us, transform us, purify us, make us like Jesus. Help us to hear when Jesus plainly speaks. May we take your word and say the amen. May it be so in me. Go with us in our fellowships. Go with us in our conversations this day. Go with us as our hearts are prepared for this evening. Bless Billy, as he prepares, anoint him. Bless Wesley. Bless our instrumentalists. Prepare us and equip us for what you have in store for us. Make us ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Mm -hmm.